Um, one of the things that uh, I've noticed as walking with people for the last 15, 20 years as a pastor is there's kind of two ways that people respond to crisis. Uh, two ways that people respond when pain happens or when hurt happens. One is, is to be with the people who are in pain, to choose to be with them, to choose to join somebody in their struggle, right? Choosing to get dirty right alongside them. In this case, get wet right alongside of the, the hurting, responding to the brokenness by being one with those who are hurting. This is super valuable. Uh, in Jewish culture, they talk about sitting shiva, which is a seven-day period of time following the death of a loved one, where the community just simply comes and sits and grieves right along with. And if you've experienced the loss of a loved one, you know how powerful the comfort is that can come in people just saying, I'm just here to sit. Uh, maybe you bring a casserole, right? You're just there to be with, Right? This is a hugely effective way to, to engage in brokenness, just by being with the hurting. The second way that people often respond to a crisis is by doing something about it. And this is way more complicated, because there's a lot of situations that we don't even know how to do anything about it. What do I do about this? It's way more complex. But ultimately, I would say it's what we want. We're grateful for people who will be with us in the pain, but maybe if there's only one thing that could be better, it'd be, man, if you could do something to take away the pain or to fix it. For instance, when we were going through a three-year period of time in our life where childhood cancer was a daily reality, it was the people who were in it with us that we were getting so much comfort from. The comfort was minimal, but it was powerful from those who, frankly, were also dealing with childhood cancer because they got it. We didn't have to explain things over and over to them. We didn't have to define terms. They just were in it with us. They understood there was great power that came from that. Some people, even many of you here in this church, joined us at a level that was so deep and intentional that it was almost as if you were there, you had kids with cancer because you just embraced our situation, right? And that helped, and it helped a lot. Um, I'm grateful for those who were with us in pain. I needed that. I needed people to be with us in cancer. What I also longed for was the second piece. In fact, if there's one thing I longed for more, it was, it was this, that someone would just defeat cancer. Would someone just fix this? Could, could, is there a way for us to just get rid of this kind of horrible reality, Right? to heal it. Today, what I want to do is talk to you about the word hurt. If you were to choose five words to explain the past and the present and the future all things, of all things, I would argue that one of those words has got to be the word hurt because there's just so much pain in the world. This is what we've been talking about the last few weeks, trying to propose a five-word summary of the, of the Bible. Uh, but we've really been talking out about way more than just five words. Here's what we've been talking about. I want to invite you to start on the back page of your notes because I couldn't fit it on the front. Some of you are like, where is he? So here's, here's a summary of what we've actually been talking about. We said that the Bible starts with the word or the life starts with the word good. This is essentially an effort to talk about the doctrine of creation. This is an attempt to address the question, how did it all begin? And the Bible answers that question by saying, well, it begins with God and it's good. If you were to symbolize this part of the story, maybe you'd use the symbol of the garden. That's the symbol that's presented to us in Genesis 1. It begins good. Then we said that the story takes a turn and we, we talked about the word broken. And this is coming out of Genesis 3. The question is, if it began good, why is there so much wrong? Why is there so much pain in the world? And the answer that the Bible presents it's deeper than this, clearly, but the answer is, well, it's not the way it's supposed to be. 
On, this, on, this, on one level, it's, it's broken, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. This was an effort to summarize the fall of mankind and the problem of evil, really. This was a massive topic, right? It was summarized in this simple word, broken. Next, we move to basically the balance of the Old Testament. We suggested that a way to summarize all of the rest of the Old Testament was with the word promise. The question is this, how does a good God respond to a broken world? And I love this message because it's so important that we get this right. If we don't, we're really messed up spiritually. The reality is that God responds to, a good God responds to a broken world by initiating relational commitment. He says, I'll be your God, you be my people. We would tend to think, if we look around in the world, that if we, if we cross somebody, if we rebel against somebody, if we offend somebody, that clearly they're just going to be like, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. This isn't to say that there aren't consequences to our sin But the beautiful message of the Bible is that God initiates a relational commitment with us even as we rebel against him. In other words, it doesn't change the way he feels about us. So if you were to symbolize the rest of the Old Testament, big, big picture, I realize this is a big generalization. One way to do it would just be with an embrace. The picture of the rest of the Old Testament is just this picture of God like, hey, you're going to suffer all kinds of consequences because of your rebellion, but you know what? I'm here, and I'm, I, want to, I want to hold you with me. You are mine. I am yours. And your rebellion and your sin doesn't change that. Today, I want to take it to the next level, and I want to talk about this word hurt as an effort to summarize big doctrines of the incarnation, the atonement. Essentially, we're talking about the two critical core teachings of the Bible that are the most foundational or fundamental in the creation of Christianity or in the explanation of Uh, what we understand to be the doctrine of the New Testament. Essentially, we're talking about the cross this morning and the doctrines that make this the central symbol of the Christian faith. I want to talk to you about what is the thinking or the theory or the philosophy or the theology that backs this and that makes this such an important symbol that 2,000 years later in California, we're still putting stuff like this. I wear one around my neck. Why? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about. Have you ever, if you've ever read any of the New Testament, if you've ever spent any time in church, if you've ever even sort of paid attention on Christmas and Easter, you've heard everything I'm going to say today. It's familiar material if you've been around Christianity at all. But you need to understand that in, even in a biblical context, even from a biblical perspective, and by that I mean this book is full of surprises, what happens at this point in the story is probably the most surprising thing at all. Of all. Uh, last week, we saw God respond to our brokenness, not by rebelling against us in turn, but by promising to be with us. That was surprising. Today, we're going to see him do something even more surprising, which is to do something about our brokenness. Today, we come to the climax of the story where something completely unheard of happens. God moves from engaging, now we're on the the front side of your notes. He moves from engaging humanity by making a promise to entering into humanity by becoming a human himself. Have you heard people talk about this ever before, right? This is the essential teaching of the New Testament. This unprecedented move of God that he comes to earth as a real human. It is the major claim of the gospels. It's the truth that the entire New Testament, all of Christian scriptures are built on this assertion. You see it on every page. One example that deals directly with this is the first couple sentences in the letter to the Hebrews. Here's how it goes. This is a New Testament letter. Nobody knows for sure who wrote it. In the past, 
God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He's referring to the doctrine of the covenant. He's referring to the fact, or she, whoever's writing this, that God has engaged humanity before through the mediator of some kind of a prophet. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Super packed right now, right? This is dense. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay, so there's this increase of intensity right here at the beginning of this letter. God speaks through the prophets. They're the messengers of God. But now in the last days, the climax of God's communication to his creation is, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son to communicate who's the son. Well, he's the exact, he's the radiance of God's glory. Do you remember those cool pictures from the eclipse that totally, the moon totally covered the sun, but you could see the little solar flares? You can't see those normally because it's just too bright. You can't distinguish the flares from the core. This is sort of the image that the writer is working with right now. He's the radi- Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. There's no distinction, really. We talk in terms of father, son, and that's for our benefit, right? He's the beginning and the end. He's the sustainer of all things. He's arguing that Jesus is God is what he's arguing and, and as careful and precise a language as he can. Another example is from the first sentence of, or the first chapter of John's gospel. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, the word was with God, he was with God in the beginning. So the word is the power by which all of creation is, is, uh, comes into existence. And then John like punches it by saying, and then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he literally, John literally begins with, well, he's got his own creation story, Begins with the beginning of all time, let there be light. That's the word, and he ends with, made his dwelling among us. There's a paraphrase called the message that puts it like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, which just accentuates, emphasizes the locality, the specificity, the humanity dynamic here of Jesus. And this is just the most critical piece of the biblical story for us. This is the most analyzed doctrine in human history. This is why more books are written about Jesus of Nazareth than any other person in the history of the world. It's the most unprecedented religious claim in the history of religion. By that I mean that there's a lot of religions that basically teach that humans can become God. Christianity is unique in teaching that God, the one true God, not just the God of the ocean or zoo. The one true God became human. Nobody else is talking about that, right? The theological word that we're really talking about at this point is this word incarnation. Taking on flesh is what the word actually means. God who has always existed, has existed outside of time and space. God who predates matter, took on matter, became human. God creates us, and then in this unprecedented effort, what is his point? To, right? It's to reach us. In the past, I, walked, I was talking to the prophets, but I'm just going to go. Becomes one of us. The writers of the New Testament, uh, they go to great lengths to demonstrate this is, a, this is a reality. This was not just God appearing to be human. This is God becoming a real human, a real man, 
born of a real woman, lived as a poor working class member of an oppressed people group. He got hungry, he got tired, experienced the full range of human emotion. He wept, got angry, he partied, he got frustrated, he was tempted in all ways just as we are. And I would say this, friends, that perhaps the biggest proof, the most important evidence that God really did become human is that he suffered. Um, It's not real, maybe hopeful sounding, but that's what it takes to be a person. That's what it takes to be really human. You gotta gotta endure some suffering. There's no way we would even consider the reality of God in human flesh unless that human suffered. He has to show that he actually experiences humanity in its broken state. He's gotta suffer. Gotta know what it feels like to be in pain, to be unfairly treated. These are examples of what I'm talking about. To lose a friend, He would have to experience the full weight of the brokenness of this world, and that's exactly what happens. He's the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, but he's also the God who gets betrayed by a friend. He's the God who knows all, sees all, but he's also the God who gets lied to and gets spit on. He's the God who gets punched in the face. I mean, it bends your brain a little bit. He's the God who bled real blood and died a real death. So what's the point? I think there's two. Initially, the point is that God understands. He understands you. Uh, He he understands you more than just as a creator, as the all-knowing God. He understands you experientially. He's been there. He's walked on this road. He knows because he's been here. The climax of the story of God moves from God engaging humanity to God entering humanity. It's the, it's the difference between sympathy, I feel bad for you, and empathy. I, I, I feel what you're feeling. Right? He, he has always known what it's been like to be human because he, he made us, he built us, he imagined and created us. But the incarnation moves God to a place where he, he understands humanity experientially because he knows, he's been there. So that's the initial point, that God truly and fully understands us. And this can be super powerful. I imagine you've got stories like I do of when you're you're feeling like no one really gets you and then you meet somebody who does. I had a college roommate in Chicago, like two or three weeks after we started, you know, living in the same house, we're having dinner one time and one of us makes a comment, I don't even remember how it happened. And we recognize that both of us grew up in these homes that were really significantly shaped by this specific mothering group that had a really interesting and specific set of sort of priorities and perspectives on life. It was this nursing, natural foods, you know, whole foods before they were cool kind of a group. We'd go camping. This was the group that like shaped my growing up. And and there were some pretty weird dynamics to it. Like my mom would grow sprouts in the windowsills and stuff like that. um, So, and some stuff that's way weirder that I just can't tell you. So when, I, when Aaron and I found out that we both grew up in, in families that were shaped by this organization, it was like, you, under, you understand me. You know what, like you had carob instead of chocolate too. That's amazing. So Easter was terrible for you too. Yeah, it was. Right. We, we, we had these things. This, so you know me, right? When I met his mom, I kind of felt like I was talking to my mom, the same sort of background. In other words, God's God's, the initial difference that the incarnation makes is that God can understand us experientially, but that's not the end game. That's kind of a benefit that we attach to 
with a lot of enthusiasm because we're in this therapeutic culture. So we just want to be known and we want people to understand. And that's important. It's important. But the end game is bigger than that. And the end game is this. God wants to enter into the brokenness, not just to be with us in the brokenness, but to do something about the brokenness. That's, that's the point. That's the big point. He wants to end the brokenness, right? He wants to heal cancer. He wants to take care of the problem. He wants to overwhelm the, the worst thing that is happening to us. He doesn't want to just walk in our shoes. He wants to take our place in order to overcome the brokenness that we're affected by. This is how Paul puts it. He's writing to a church. The letter is called Colossians. Listen to how he puts it. He's going to describe how Jesus is God, and then he's going to describe how God does something to save humanity. Okay? Watch how this goes. Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, that is Christ, and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So we're very familiar with the person of Jesus, and Paul is arguing that he is God, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and here's, here's the point. Through him to reconcile to God's self all things, whether things on earth or in heaven. How is he going to do that? By making peace through his blood shed on a cross. So you first you hear all this incarnation theology. Then he moves into another major Christian doctrine, which is the doctrine of the atonement. How is he going to actually fix all this? And it's all layered with this really familiar Hebrew symbolism of like a sheep that gets his neck cut and blood is shed to cover the sins of the, of the person who's guilty. And they're saying that this, just in a short phrase, this is how he's going to bring it all back by making peace. This is how Jesus is not just entering into the pain, but he's doing something about the pain. He, he's making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This should be very familiar if you spend any time in the church. Anytime in the word. The great Christian doctrine is that God became fully human in Christ. And he was also fully God. Okay. He's God and man. He's not 50-50. He's not sometimes God, changed the clothes, now he's the man. It's, he's a 200% being. All God, all man, all the time. And this matters. Do you know why it matters? Because that's what it took for him to do something about the level of brokenness that we're experiencing in the world. God has to do something about it. And he has to do something about it as a human because we're the ones that essentially rebelled against God and suffered the consequences of it. He's got to do both. Right? He has to be human in order to take our place. In order for his death, which was his reconciliation act, to impact us. He has to be God in order for his reconciliation act to impact not just one for one, right? I could say, Ken, I'm gonna give my life for yours. And everybody would understand that, it'd be one for one. But I can't say I'm gonna give my life for yours and for Leah 
and for Marcia, right, and for Kelly. I can't do that because I'm single. I can't, I'm just an individual. God can say, my reconciling act will cover the cost, the penalty, the payment needed for the whole world. If he's just a man, it's just a beautiful gesture of sacrificial love that we can admire. But because he's God, because he's holy and without sin, his death on the cross is efficacious. It's good enough for the whole world. Right? This covers the problem. This takes care of the sin, the brokenness. It's not really about just God taking our place, though we use that substitutionary language a lot because it feels very personal, and it's true, but it's more than just God taking my place. It's God destroying death. It's God taking care of the thing that was never supposed to be part of the picture in the first place. Death is not part of the original plan, right? Death is a consequence of the rebellion against God. It's a natural consequence of saying, I think I know better than God does. That's what he's got to take care of, so that's what happens on the cross. Death is defeated, way bigger than personal substitution. He takes the full power of death. He takes it, experiences it. How does he do that? He actually dies, showing, and then showing that he himself is more powerful than that ultimate power, death, he rises again. He comes back to life. And this is what we pray every week before we receive communion. He is the perfect sacrifice for the whole world. It's not just for me or for you. It's for the whole world. In the end, people say, well, death always wins. The Christian should say, not anymore. <laughs> That's obsolete theology because death doesn't win anymore. It's not the period at the end of the sentence. That's been erased and replaced by a comma. It's a temporary pause because something defeated death that doesn't have the role of most powerful thing in the universe anymore. Resurrection is the most powerful thing in the universe now. Jesus came back to life to demonstrate that. Something's actually broken. Something's actually, there's actually a problem, which is why this has, so, so this is what we say. We, we get all tied up in the, theo I do, I get tied up in the theology. I love it. I love thinking about the philosophy. I love thinking about how it all kind of goes together. And here's the problem with kind of sliding more towards the academic is we can, we can forget, actually for, forget the personal human dynamic, which is this, this, this required some suffering. So now I'm coming back to that word hurt. That's why I chose that word hurt, right? In other words, my kids would ask me, why does Jesus have to suffer? Why couldn't he just say, it's okay, I forgive everything, right? And, and the simple answer to that is because he actually created a real world. This isn't a fairy tale. And so when things get broken, there's consequences. And when people harm people, it actually hurts. And there's actually damage that's done. And you can't just say, ah, forget about it. I'll just, ah, just forget about it. That, it's totally unreal. So he must suffer the actual consequences, which requires him to suffer, to sacrifice something personally. Because God is just, he can't just say, you know that horrible thing that happened to you? Just forget about it. Because he's just. But because he's loving also, He'll say, you know that terrible thing that happened to you? I'm going to take that on myself, right? I'm going to experience that myself because I love you. I can't take it away, but I can take it. And in that sense, free you from the, from the consequences, big picture, right? So we're talking about the doctrine of the incarnation, and we're talking about the doctrine of the atonement, this reconciling act. And, and the, the, I'm, I'm telling you this story um, in an effort to try to give some really, because we're not going to talk about incarnation and atonement out on the sidewalk or at school. The words, though, that we can use to tell this chapter of the story is, is the word hurt. The word hurt. Um, it's, it's important for us to realize 
Two things, and I've already said them. Let me just say them one more time. One, God hurts with us. He hurts with us. He knows what it feels like to be sad, to fall down, to be treated um, meanly, to cry. He knows what it feels like to build something up and see it fall apart. That happened to him. He knows what it feels like to invest years into a person and then have them walk away and not turn back because that happened to him. He understands he hurt with us. Daddy, why did God come to earth as a little boy? So he would know exactly what it feels like to be here. But not only that, not only did God hurt with us, he hurt for us. That's the atonement piece. He took our punishment so we could be forgiven. He experienced the full power of death so we would not have to. He died and overcame death so that death would no longer have the last word. And the cross is the picture of these two realities in one symbol, right? The cross is where and when God hurt for us. The cross is where and when God hurt uh, with us and for us, when he took our place, when he overcame sin and suffering and death. Daddy, why, why did Jesus have to die so that death could be defeated, so that death would no longer have the last word, so we could be free from death? So, this is the hard part of the story, right? We love talking about good. We sustained brokenness. Uh, promise was kind of a hopeful message. And, and this is a hard one. Um, hurt is a hard message. It's when we and, and I think the reason that it's hard is because this is where we come face to face with the consequences of our own sin. This is when we, we see that our own rebellion, our own sinfulness can't just get brushed off the table like no big deal. That didn't matter. It mattered, right? And the reality that in order for brokenness to get fixed, in order for disease to get cured, in order for evil to be defeated, something had to be done about it. That's an important reality. And uh, essentially what we're saying is somebody had to hurt. Somebody had to sacrifice. The, the truth is, uh, on a big cosmic, spiritual, and otherwise level, we are like those poor folks in Texas. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. And the only one who is qualified and able and powerful enough to rescue us from our situation is God himself. And thankfully, he promised to do that, and then he did. The rescue effort required sacrifice on his part. God suffered, God hurt in order to save, in order to rescue. And that's why we embrace the cross as a Christian symbol. That's because the cross tells the story of a good God who embraces brokenness by hurting for us in order to rescue us. That's why, I wear this, that's why I wear a cross. It's not traditional. It's not habit. It's not fashion. It's because that's a truth I want to hold on to. I don't think it's healthy for me to go through life forgetting that Jesus sacrificed his life for me. I know this is super familiar to many of you. I hope it doesn't get old because there's nothing better than this. Jesus sacrificed his life for me. That gives me huge value, huge sense of worth, and frankly, a whole like, reservoir of gratitude from which I can live. I think that uh, the reason that some of the stories coming out of Texas are so moving is because they echo this theme of real sacrifice in order to rescue the hurting. Their stories of sacrifice, like this policeman who has no reason to leave his home because the waters are way too high, but he says... Last words, there's work to be done, drives to try to help somebody and loses his life in the process. Something about that story that resonates, that like, man, there's something about that that echoes this bigger theme. Like a mom who puts her three-year-old on her back and tries to swim to shore in the process. 
loses her life to, to save the life of another. Something about that that's inspiring, but is more than inspiring. It's like true on a deep level. You hear what I'm saying? It, it, it echoes something that is true. It echoes, we know we need that at some level. That's a, it's a deeper truth. This idea of hurt and sacrifice, it resonates because it's like in the foundation of the creation. This is what it takes to actually do restoration. This is part of the story. Last quick thought. It's so easy, friends, to point out brokenness, to complain about brokenness, to demand an end to the brokenness, and it's a whole different thing to enter into the brokenness and do something about it, to be willing to sacrifice personally, to pay a personal cost, to be willing to hurt. There's no reason we should expect any different if that's what Jesus did for us. This this is more than just understanding theology. This is like When people say, follow Jesus, this is what we need to understand this means. This is the pattern of restoration that is established for us. It will require personal sacrifice. It will require hurt. He has hurt for us and and, and um, probably in our finest moments, we are hurting for others. All right. That's a lot of content. God bless you. May, uh, May the word... Um, be helpful to you. God bless this community. May our pursuit of you be deeply informed so that it sustains uh, the brokenness, uh, the uh, adverse pressures of our culture. And more than that, may it motivate us towards joy and gratitude and a life that is meaningful. Uh, May the truths of your word Be our story. May we live from these places. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.